Welcome to Just Curious Media. This is Let's Talk Movies, and I'm Jason Connell. On the show today, I'm talking about something very exciting because it's like an interview I did a decade ago. It's been archived on ice, and I wanted to dust it off and give it a new life. So back in 2011, I honored two industry heavyweights with Lifetime Achievement Awards, I should say, at the Los Angeles United Film Festival. Now, I started the United Film Festivals in 2002 and ran them in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Chicago, New York, London, and my hometown of Tulsa, Oklahoma, which is where I started it in the first place. So I was lucky enough to honor legendary actor Dabney Coleman. You may know him or you should know him from movies like 9 to 5, Tootsie, War Games, so many more. Well, Dabney turned 90 years old just a few days ago, January 3rd, 2022. But again, this happened a decade ago. And we also honored director Mark Rydell, who's currently 92, coming up on 93 in March and he was nominated for an Oscar for directing On Golden Pond and directed many more things, also acted in things. So I had them both there that night at the Vista Theater, let me just say. Now, you may have read about it recently because it was purchased by Quentin Tarantino. Yes, the famous director, one of my favorite of all times, but he always loved the theater and I actually knew the team that owned the theater, and I ran the festival there for many years there, and their other theater down the street, which is the Los Feliz 3 Theater, which they still own. But Quentin, during the pandemic, made him a good offer. He owns it now. Very cool. But this is back in the day. And so they do handprints in front of the theater. And I was lucky enough to do many. I would recruit, you know, like Carl Gottlieb, who wrote Jaws, and we would have him out and play Jaws on the 35 millimeter big screen before they went digital. You know, I had Vilmo Zygmunt out, who was a DP of movies like Deliverance, The Deer Hunter, Close Encounters, played Close Encounters, rest in peace, Mr. Zygmunt. He was amazing to meet, such a great cinematographer. And then John Landis after that, but I'll save that for another time, I guess. So had them out, put their hands in cement, gave them Lifetime Achievement Awards. Super fun night, really. Over the moon for a fanboy like myself. Well, this led to sitting down with Dabney at his home and interviewing him, having a conversation for the United Films podcast, the shortly lived United Films podcast. But uh, we recorded it on a video camera and a shotgun mic because we were going to film it. And he's like, no, no, just audio only. So we're just kind of sitting side by side. And I think I was just like ping ponging the, the mic in my hand back to him. Um, the interview has not been altered. I did edit this, released it again, not for very long. Uh, it has movie clip transitions, which is kind of fun. I wouldn't do that now, but again, this is thinking back then. I thought, okay, we set up a new movie. We segue in with a movie clip. So all of that is intact. And I also, when I got to know Dabney, I love the fact that he was a Washington Redskins fan, as has been myself since uh, I was a wee lad. I was a Skins fan. Name changed a couple of years ago to Washington football team. And the name's about to change again. They're going <laughs> to announce the new name in February of 2022. So who knows? It's crazy. But we have that in common. And we got along famously. When I went back and listened to this interview, it's hilarious, though, because I just sound so much younger. Younger in experience, but I have uh, passion. And I'm excited to be there. And uh, it's really fun. And I do reference the United Films podcast. So I left that in. 
you're going to hear it. It's no longer a thing because we did two episodes. <laughs> we did Dabney Coleman and then John Kapolis, which we'll save that. We're going to pull that out of the archives and have it come and be a part of Let's Talk Movies as well. We'll kind of do something like this, a setup, play the interview. But the reason it ended is because I closed, ended the film festivals in 2014 after 12 years, glorious years, traveling to all those cities. It was great, but 12 years was a long haul in the film festival biz. Now, it's kind of funny. I was destined to become a podcaster. I just didn't know it. I was way ahead of my time. I guess, but uh, here we are giving it a second life. But it wasn't a total wash at the time because I got to know Dabney better. And what happened was that interview and then meeting him at the festival and honoring him led to producing a documentary about Dabney Coleman. Not such a bad guy, conversations with Dabney Coleman. And it's on Amazon Prime Video. You can check it out. I highly recommend it if you're a fan of Dabney Coleman's as I am. So that's really it. This is the setup for anybody on YouTube Live. You're going to have to, unfortunately, download or stream the episode, the podcast episode, to hear the interview because I couldn't insert it here. So this is more of a setup for the YouTube Live, but I hope you do. It's worth the time. And thanks for coming back and supporting Let's Talk Movies. This is the United Films Podcast. We're sitting here with Dabney Coleman, and we're going to kind of reflect on some of these great movies from the 80s with Dabney and kind of pick his brain on some classics and leading all the way up to even Boardwalk Empire, which he was on for the first two seasons playing the Commodore. So, Dabney, first off, it's great to meet you and have you on our show. <laughs> Good to be here. All right, Dabney, so you've got a huge career, and I've been a big fan for a long time, and knowing you're a Redskins fan has bonded me even more to you, but we're not going to cover your whole career today, but we're just going to jump in and talk about some of these films from the 80s, and just kind of maybe talk about some, you know, some things about the experience, your thoughts of the movie, and so on and so forth. So one that stood out right at the beginning of 1980, 9 to 5. Judy, you've got to help me. That mob has gone crazy out there. They're trying to kill me. Well, why would they want to do a nasty thing like that? I don't know. I'm not such a bad guy. You're a sexist, egotistical, lying, hypocritical bigot. So I have a few faults. You had such an incredible role in that film. Maybe you could give us some little insight. I mean, I know I saw it a million times as a kid. The theme song was even a hit. But what was that experience like going through? And did you even know it was going to be as popular as it became? We did not really, to tell you the truth, have a clue as, as to the amount of success it would, it would have. And especially that it ultimately did have, which I don't think for about 20 or 30 years, I don't think you could run into anybody who had not seen that film, and most of them twice, which I'm not saying that's the quality of the film so much is that for some reason, I think one reason, it was the first movie, by the way, silly and funny as it was, it was the first movie about women in the workplace. And it, by the way, had a, a tremendous effect, I think, subconsciously, ultimately, a tremendous effect on women in the workplace. So people forget about that. And coincidentally, so did Tootsie, one that I followed, you know, right up. To. Both of them had that, uh, that effect, fortunately. It was a great experience. Those three ladies were all, at that time, stars in their own right. I had just come off of Mary Hartman. 
So I, I had a, a little bit of a name, but that was a television series with Louise Lasser, and it, it really probably sprung me most significantly in my career. Nine to Five kind of gave me a name in films, and, and so it was very significant to me. He does have a family to support. And I don't. What has that got to do Wait, with anything? Violet, look, my hands are tied here. The company needs a man in this position. Clients would rather deal with men when it comes to figures. He seemed to have a knack in these 80s movies to kind of be the stern, smarmy kind of boss that you liked. He had, you know, you had that charisma, but you didn't quite trust. And he kind of carried that character into a lot of other roles, it seems, into War Game. We'll get to some of these other ones. I mean, you have Dolly Parton, Lily Tomlin, Jane Fonda. Is that a role that you had to fight for? Was there other guys like that were close to landing that role or any recollection of that? Actually, uh, the, kind, the kind of type of character that you're describing was born in um, that series, Mary Hartman, a character named Merle Jeter. That was about 80% of where that character came from in uh, 9 to 5. Fortunately, Colin Higgins, the writer, director, had seen that, and so had uh, Lily Tomlin. When I went on the interview, I'm not the most confident of guys coming out of interviews, and I do an interview and I forget it until they say you either have it or you don't, and then I go my way. But I don't uh, meditate on it for a long period of time. Nor do I come out with any degree of confidence. But having known that they had seen that, the director, Colin Higgins, I said, this is mine. I'm getting this part, period. This is not even close. And I really, I really felt that. And I just don't feel that way in parts usually. But I said, whether there's competition, I have no idea. Whether it was close, I also have no idea. All I know is that Lily Tomlin, who had Colin's respect already, the director, she said, get Dabney Coleman, he's funny and he's sexy. And so Lily threw that in, and I know that didn't hurt. I think it probably was the coup de grace. He just said, that's my man. How confident was I, you ask? I had a part in Private Benjamin of the colonel. I told my agent, don't accept the offer. He said, I'm going to do it. Remember, I, I didn't have any name yet, and I didn't had made anybody any money yet. But I said, we can't do this. It was, it was a good part. Robert Weber ended up doing it, and it was a good part. But it couldn't compare to the 9 to 5. And I said to these guys, once again, I, I, I'm going to get this part. I'm going to get this part. And if I don't, it's worth it to roll the dice. But I'm going to get this part, because the other part, as good as it is, best part I would have had at that time in a movie, not worth the gamble of losing nine to five. Dora Lee, I'm serious. Don't you understand I am crazy about you? You're all I ever think about. Mr. Hart, I've told you before, I'm a married woman. And I'm a married man. That's what makes it so perfect. 1981, a much more subtle role, a great film of which we played at our festival two years ago, On Golden Pond. Just a wonderfully beautiful film in every way. And you played a great role in it. And it was a very different role than the 9 to 5 character. So maybe we'll just talk about how that kind of came about. Ironically, I've had one bad review in my life. And that was out of uh, Dallas, my home state, for God's sake. Some guy writes, everything was wonderful except how could Jane Fonda fall in love with the wimp like Dabney Coleman? And so Oh, and by the way, I agreed, he was, he was kind of a wimpy guy, so it wasn't quite the same, but I've never related to the sexy part anyway, but uh, that was a rude <laughs> awakening coming from my home state, by the way. But what a great experience that was. The night we wrapped, 
9 to 5, Lily came up and said, well, I guess you'll be working with Jane again soon, eh? And I said, what? And then she says, oh, my God, I shouldn't have said that. Never mind, never mind. Okay, so following Monday, I get a call from Jane saying, um, you're going to get something FedExed over to you. Will you read it and let me know if you'd be interested in doing it? It happened to be on Golden Pond. I did read it immediately, peered up three or four different times in there in scenes that I wasn't even in, and, and uh, called back and said, are you kidding? Of course I'll do it. And Jane says, well, you have to understand, I'm just doing this for my father, and no one's getting any money, but I have a feeling that it might give my dad a shot at an Oscar, which for some reason he never won at age 74, which is incredible to me. Uh, and so I said, oh, okay, just, just, I'll do your little film. You're not planning on doing something unusually. No, 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 just, um, you know, just... Ah, doesn't seem too offensive, as long as you're quiet. Thank you. Chelsea always slept in the same bed with her husband. Yeah, I'm sure. Ethel and I do, you know, we sleep together, been doing it for years. Lo and behold, out comes the uh, finished product of, uh, on Golden Pond, which is not only a great film, but I think it's great forever. It has legs forever, and it's for all ages. Little 12-year-olds and you know, middle-aged people and old people, it's a very special movie, and always will be. And just happened to have those three giants. Won the Academy Award for Henry. I think Catherine won one, if I'm not mistaken. Multi, multiple nominations in a, a classic film. You're so right about all ages. I watched that with my parents and my grandparents, and I was a kid at the time, and we were all affected. And we played it two years ago to a big crowd, and it still works. Right. It's about relationships and family, much like 9 to 5 dealt with women in the workplace. They're still relevant. You know, these movies right. are... Right. You made some great choices along the way. Were you kind of steering that? Like, after 9 to 5, was it you finding these other roles? Or? No, I, I don't think I've ever been in a, in a position to steer my career. Very, very, very few people are in that position, in my opinion. Uh, I think you can count them on at most two hands. You know, De Niro and Merle Streep and people like that. There's ten, maybe, that can do that. I just got lucky. I think they just came along, and it was my good fortune to be there. I'm going to skip over Modern Problems, which is a bizarre little movie that I enjoyed as a kid, but maybe to get to a much bigger, you know, notch on the belt was 1982's Tootsie. Look, Dorothy, I, I never promised Julie I'd be exclusive. I never said I wouldn't see other women. It's just that I, I know she doesn't want me to see other women, so I lied to her to keep from hurting her. That's very convenient. I was doing a very underrated movie that I did called um, Young Doctors in Love, which happened to be Gary Marshall's first directorial film. Good, funny movie. It makes you laugh. Is this working? Good morning, I am Dr. Joseph Prang, Chief of Staff, Chief of Surgery, Chief of Busting Balls. No one saw it, but I was doing it at the time, and I was way out on location in Gardena or somewhere, and Sidney, who was my acting teacher and my good friend for many, many years, Sidney Pollock, he wanted me to do the part uh, that he ultimately did uh, of the agent. And I'm coming home from this location from Young Doctors in Love, exhausted, dropped by his house, and he says, you got to do this. you got to do this, this part of this agent. And I said, Sidney, I've read the script, and I don't think it's funny. You know, this is only uh, 
uh, Larry Gelbart, you know, one of the great comedy writers of the 20th century. And I'm saying, I just don't think it's funny. And so Sidney did what he used to do when, we, when I first came out here. And we'd have dinner virtually every Friday night at his house, which he would cook, because he featured himself a great cook, which he didn't even come close to being, but he thought he was. And he enjoyed cooking. At any rate, we went over there every Friday night, and he would read us the script of the next TV show, playing all the parts, and it would be interesting. It would not be dumb. He's just a great reader. He's a great actor. And I said, Sidney, I've read the script. I said, you can read it if you want, and I know you do a great job, but I still don't think it's funny. He said, well, come on, do it. I'd do it for you. And he would. And he, just, and he didn't say things he didn't mean. And, and I thought about that, and I said, yeah, he would do that for me. He would do that for me. So I said, all right, I'll do it. Two weeks or so go by, and he gives me a call and says, well, you're not going to do the part of the agent because Dustin wants me, Sidney, to do the part because they had rehearsed it in New York several times. And Dustin says, I want you Sidney Pollock to tell me you'll never act in this town again as that character. He said, that will scare me. That will, as an actor, that will help me realize or, 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 or contemplate the fact that I may never work again as an actor. That's going to scare me. So she sent Sidney flowers saying, please be my agent, Dorothy. Dozen roses from Dorothy, the character that Dustin played. Finally, uh, Sidney relinquished and says, so now you've got to play. The director. Gosh, I'm afraid you're not right for this role, though, honey. I'm, I'm sorry. Thanks for coming by. Page 285. Do you want camera one or two on that? Camera two and tell Art about that. Why am I not right, Mr. Carlisle? Well, I'm just uh, trying to make a certain statement here, and I'm, I'm looking for a very specific physical type. Mr. Carlisle, I'm an actress. I'm a character actress. I can play this part any way you want. Honey, I'm sure that you're a very, you very good actress. Why don't you give me an idea what you're looking for? It's just that you're a little bit too soft what? and genteel. You're not threatening enough. Not threatening enough? How's this? You take your hands off me, or I'm going to knee your balls right through the roof of your mouth. Is that enough of a threat? To start, we're shooting the movie. No one thinks it's funny. By that, I mean you get a sense, you know, when you're doing stuff, whether it's funny or not. The actors, the crew, the director, whatever. Nobody thought this was funny. We just, Sidney said, everybody said, okay, check the gate. It says, oh, okay, let's move on. And we'd look at each other and said, well, Christ, where's the funny? There's no funny. Don't you want to make it funny? No, let's go. Let's move on. We go on through this to the point, and it was like that, to the point that the last day I was there, I was there about seven weeks in New York, and I said to Jessica, Jesus, Jesse, I don't feel like I'm making a movie. Something's wrong here. I don't get it. I don't feel like I'm, I don't know, there's no rehearsal. We're not, no one's laughing. No one's having any fun. It's just, I don't get it. And Jessica says to me, thank God, quote, no one will see this piece of shit, unquote. Well, she won the Academy Award for that. And within six weeks, had scored about $50 million, which at that time was a lot of dough. And uh, another huge, a huge success. But point being that it was not funny when we shot it. It just wasn't. Sidney being this, this great uh, method teacher at the Neighborhood Playhouse where he taught me and others that, that you would recognize that were in my class. I said, well, what did you do, Sidney? He says, and, and Sidney's not the funniest guy on earth. So he says, I just, I just made up my mind after a couple of weeks that I'm just going to shoot it. I'm just going to make them act like I was taught to act. And that is, everyone's going to be honest. When I saw the premiere, I laughed 11 times to the point, and this is my very good friend, I said, 
Sidney, you have to know I'm not kissing your ass. I said, but those, those laughs were genuine. He said, I heard you. And I heard you. I was listening, and I know your laugh. He said, I heard I was counting them. I don't laugh out loud often at all. But that made me laugh out loud, and a lot of people. And strong enough to be the woman that was the best part of my manhood, the best part of myself. That is one nutty hospital. I knew there was a reason she didn't like me. Commercial, cut it. And cut. And this is one of my favorite movies growing up, and I think they're actually working on a reboot of this movie, 1983's War Games. Those blips are not real missiles, they're phantoms. Jack, there's nothing to indicate a simulation at all. Everything's working perfectly. At that time, people were probably scared of machine and man, the Cold War era. You know, I don't know what your thoughts were of the script initially, but it almost feels like that role was written for you. Marty Brest originally was going to direct that. In fact, he did direct it for two or three weeks. Great guy and a great director. They fired him, hired John Batham, who did a hell of a job on it. Great job on Saturday Night Fever, you know, terrific director. I thought you just nailed that role. You were the bad guy, you know, to the T. And it was kind of coming out for Matthew Broderick at the time. And I don't know what they did at the box office because I was too young to know box office, but I know it touched our generation. Did you think it was going to be the, the hit that it was? Probably, but I don't know why people thought it was a bad guy. By that time, see, they became accustomed that I'm going to be the bad guy. I don't call a guy trying to save the universe being a bad guy, do you? I don't call someone allowing a teenager to take over a machine that can dictate whether or not we go to World War III a bad guy. I call him right up there with Jesus of Nazareth. So, I mean, that's just coming from me. I thought he was a pretty good guy, but he was something, I know what you're saying, I'm not uh, being coy, it's something uh, unlikable about him. And what it was, was he didn't like the kid. He's such a likable guy, especially this is his first major movie. I think he's 18 or something. I just... This cute little teenage guy is so likable that anyone who had any differences with him is going to be the villain. Well, that just happened to fall on me. So that's the reality of that. I was trying to save the universe, if that's okay with everybody. The machine has locked us out. It's sending random numbers to the silos. Get the codes to launch the missiles. Just unplug the thing. Jesus Christ. That won't work, General. It would interpret a shutdown as the destruction of Norad. The Man with One Red Shoe, 1985's Tom Hanks film. Your character from War Games kind of reminded me of the guy in The Man with One Red Shoe. I watched it actually just recently on Netflix and it still held up. The studio did not back it promotion-wise. I think they got a lot of criticism from the government because it made the CIA look rather ridiculous. But I saw it again too. I thought it was a good movie. Very good movie. What we do want to do is find out who he is and what he knows. Yes, sir. Now then, anybody, why the one red shoe? 1984's Muppets Take Manhattan. I'd be proud to produce your show. <laughs> Fellas, you're going to be on Broadway. But I really would like you to read the script because there's still something no, 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 missing, no, no, and I think talk, maybe talk, you can talk, fix don't, it. Don't worry about that. We fix all those things in the previews. Okay. Now look, I got a million things to do. I got to call the papers, rent a theater, and all I need from you is three hundred dollars. Three hundred dollars? Yeah, a piece. I mean, Muppets are relevant again, and in my opinion, they've always been relevant. I don't know if you have any fond memories, any recollection on that film. I remember one time something happened to the lights. And on the break, I'm smoking or something like this, and all of the puppets stayed in character. All of them were doing this, which is 
they were looking up at the light problem up toward the ceiling, and their mouths, as you would naturally do, would open like this as they looked up and looking at each other. And Ten minutes, they were like this, and they never, ever came out of character. And, and Kermit said to me, Damn it, you, you smoke too much. You ever think about that? You know, and it affected me. Maybe I am smoking too much or something because it came from Kermit. But it was just the cutest thing to see them coming around like this. And, Shouldn't be too long talking to each other. Mm -hmm. I think it's over there. No, no. Or well, maybe on that side. It was adorable and professional and true artistry. I had an office at the Crossroads of the World for a few years, and they were shooting the first Muppet movie of the reboot. And in my office, where I sat, could peek right down and see this chest. And it was open for about five minutes, and I looked down in there, and there was Kermit and Miss Piggy hanging there. And I swear I was like looking at a rock star. There they yeah, are, behind yeah. the scenes. Yeah. They didn't have their puppeteers, but it just really impacted me. Right. So we're going to skip ahead now. We're going to bring it all the way to almost present with the, one of the greatest shows, I'd say, on television, Boardwalk Empire. They're calling this the second golden age of television. I'd like to know when the first golden age was, and I'm dead serious. There's nothing even close to what's been going on. He never even asked her name. Just pointed to the one he wanted. The rest was understood. Jimmy! Hey, hey, hey! You're stronger than that! Jimmy! Originally, I was supposed to do six shows and get killed off, poisoned by my maid. So I'm back for show six of season one, and we didn't get scripts. We only got our scenes to learn our lines from. I said, I know I'm getting killed off. I said, but I don't see anywhere in here I'm get killed. He says, well, we've been meaning to tell you that we're going to build you up next year, and you're going to try to take over, or at least have this confrontation with Buscemi, with uh, Nucky, next year. I think they have power. Soon. You'll see what real power is. All of a sudden, much to my surprise, they said, no, well, we've decided to kill off the Commodore. And the next week, uh, his son. I think they offed you far too soon. I think you had a lot more in the tank, and I would have liked to see your character, you know, be involved more. In that 80, 85 period we were talking about, and you were just having these great scripts and having these great experiences, what was a typical day in the life of Dabney Coleman? Well, it had to include tennis because I was playing a lot. When I say play tennis, I play tennis. And everything that went along with it, conditioning. I was one of the first people that I know of to really hit the gym and understand the benefits of it. And that was a part of every day. That was an hour in the gym, two hours on the court. Uh, so that was a big part of it. And then just had a lot of fun. Those were great, great fun days, you know, and thing, times I'll never forget. Traveling a lot to New York, to Europe, watching Wimbledon. I did whatever I wanted to. It was like winning the lottery, except for the work that goes into doing the park, which is real work. It's a vague answer, but what was I doing in my days? I was thinking about what I was doing. That's what I was doing. That's a great answer. Any last thoughts on your career? Yeah, no, I know that I'm equipped to do better work now than I've ever done. I, that's my hunch. There's certainly no problem with memory or, or anything like that at all. I have a passion desire to get back and to do a couple of very good things again. To just work, no, but to do something very, very good would be icing on the cake. So thank you so much for listening and please be sure to subscribe to the Let's Talk Movies podcast as well as the Let's Talk Movies YouTube live channel. You can also really help us by giving the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcast. And for all you listeners that enjoy sharing your thoughts, you can leave us a review on Apple Podcast. Send us a direct message 
or post a comment on any Let's Talk Movies social media platform. We also highly recommend checking out our other podcast and visiting JustCuriousMedia.com.